Father, thank you so much for your word, for the scriptures. Thank you that they are inspired by you, that they're given to us for our benefit, for, for building us up and instructing and teaching and training in righteousness. God, would you help us this morning to be listening to your voice through your written word and help us when we, when we listen to, to know um, your voice coming through. God, help me to, as the speaker, to um, cut out other distractions and to um, cut out other voices and help me to be listening to you. Um, God, we know your character, we know your goodness, and we ask that you'd um, demonstrate that to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, we're doing Philippians. We're cruising through Philippians. And... uh, This morning's reading was chapter 4, verse 1 to 9. And at the start of the series, I said Philippians is full of quotable things, you know. And this nine verses is just packed full of like, that's my favorite. No, that's my favorite. That's my, I'm going to put that on the wall. No, that's going on the mirror, you know. So uh, it's a great little passage. And what I decided to do so that we can focus on some of the real detail in there is actually break this one passage up into four sermons. So we're going to do four sermons over the course, well, nine verses over the course of four sermons. And we've sort of split it up, but there is going to be some overlap. I like that. That suits my personality, my way of thinking about things. But uh, yeah, just so you know, that's kind of what we're doing. Um, but I actually want to start this morning in a totally different book of the Bible. Um, I want to start with a section from, from John, John's Gospel, from John 17. And this passage is sometimes called Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's a big, an extended prayer that Jesus offers uh, as one of the last acts before he goes to the garden to be arrested and then put on trial and crucified. And so this high priestly prayer, it carries a sort of gravity to it, doesn't it? Because he starts out by saying, my hour has come. And he's going to begin praying his desire for his disciples and praying in communion with God. We get a glimpse into, right at the very end, what his, his heart was about. What sort of thing might Jesus pray at that sort of time? Well, he begins by, saying, by praying that God would glorify him and that in him, God the Father would be glorified. That's close to our theme for the year that I, I sort of cast way back in February and, and we've sung the song this morning, Christ be magnified. Paul echoes this sentiment Jesus lived this way. His determination, whatever happened, was to glorify God. And here he's petitioning God, would you glorify your name? He prays also for his disciples. He prays for their protection because he knows that they're going to be, he's going to be going away and they're going to be in the world and they're going to need protection. And nevertheless, he says, as you, Father, as God has sent me, So I am sending them, the disciples, into the world. The mission that God had 
in sending Jesus is now being commissioned to us. Co-missioned. That's an interesting way of thinking about it, isn't it? We're being given the mission of God as disciples of Jesus that it was in him to glorify the Father and to make him known, and now it's in us to do the same. And then he opens up his prayer uh, beyond the 12 disciples, he says, My prayer is not for them alone. This is in verse 20, if you're trying to follow along. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. That all those who believe in the message of Jesus that has been passed down by their disciples and, and generations of disciples, all of them would be one He doesn't say this word here, but we could say one body. They would be united as one. Father, just as you are in me, this is Jesus praying, just as you are in me and I am in you. Jesus sees that the unity that he has with the Father, the oneness, is what he desires for the church together, for his people together, and the people with God. It's an extension not just of mission, like Jesus was told to do this task, and therefore we've been told to do the same. It's an extension of a relationship. Jesus was united to the Father through the Holy Spirit, and so too we are made one with God the way Jesus was one with God. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Our unity to God has a missional purpose, that the world might believe that God sent Jesus. Verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Well, there's a lot in there, isn't there? But the thing I really want to focus on is Jesus' desire at the last hour before, his, before events unfolded, was that his people, the disciples, and then the followers that would come after would be united, that they would be one. And even brought to complete unity. And the desire is not just for their own sake. He says, at complete unity, the world will know that you sent me. He's saying, the world will know that the Father sent Jesus and have loved them even as you have loved me. Estimates vary on how many Christian denominations there are. Uh, I've seen one statistic saying something like 47,000 different denominations of the Christian church. I've seen uh, lower ones around the 30,000 mark. I've read an article that talked about, well, 
it sort of depends how you categorize these things, right? Because you're sitting in a Baptist church and there are dozens and dozens of different kinds of Baptists. So even if you reduce the Protestant church down to kind of very broad headings like Baptist here and Presbyterian here and just accept that there's a whole lot of range within that, one estimate I saw which was very conservative said about 200 different kind of traditions within the Protestant church. And that's not to mention, of course, that we have the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church as well. Um, whether it's uh, 47,000 or 200, uh, it's a different number from the one that's in, that Jesus desires, isn't it? He wants one church, one body, worshipping one Lord. I was talking this week with a friend from another denomination, he, uh, and we were talking about missional kind of opportunities at the university, and we were throwing ideas around, you know, would this sort of thing work, or, you know, how could we do this? And uh, one of the struggles that comes up when you start doing that, and I see it in others, and even worse, I, I see it in myself is a temptation to kind of want to mind your own territory. Like, you know, you start to think about uh, protecting your own little turf and your own kind of holding on to your own people and that sort of thing. Um, I've, I've heard people make the claim that this is the case in Hamilton to a sort of large degree, that there can be a kind of a a competition and an edginess from ch- between churches. There are justifications you could give for this, right? As a as a Baptist, as someone in that one of those twenty, I mean, two hundred different groups, you know, uh, I've got a theology that talks about the church being the gathered body, and so this church, this congregation, we don't look to a bishop to kind of tell us what we should be doing. And we, we discern Christ together. And I, I believe in that. I believe that's, that's a good thing. But the risk of it is that we become very siloed. We become our own little kingdom, our own little unit. And we've become focused and protective on, on our own things. Do you know what that's called? I've decided I think I know what that's called. I think that's called Pride. And pride is not um, just pleasure at your accomplishments. Um, Nathan brings me something he brought me on this morning, right? My son brought me something he was making. I couldn't really hear what he was saying because it was loud. That's fine. He's proud to show daddy this thing. That's not, that's not the pride I'm talking about. That's, that's good and healthy. We can be happy with our achievements. But pride in the unhealthy sense is a lot of what we've been talking about in this Philippian series, it's an obsession with self. It's orienting everything around the self so that our concerns and our agenda is more important. It leads to other sins. You know, the, the sins that are listed in Scripture, I think, are often nested within this big category of pride or self. Envy comes... 
when we have pride operating in our bodies because what someone else has or what someone else can achieve is now an offense or an insult or a threat to my sense of self. It would be easy, wouldn't it, if I was totally wrapped up in pride to hear about, as a pastor, to hear about another church doing really great things. And instead of celebrating that and rejoicing and promoting it, to feel a bit of a sense of, well, why not me? Why not us? Pride is a dangerous thing. And it runs, I want to argue, totally contrary to the prayer of Jesus in John 17. Because pride in this sense that I'm talking doesn't unite us, it divides us. It creates, because of the flesh working within us, a division where we don't want to be united to that person. And in fact, we're going to be wary of them or even criticize them. If you've been in church long enough, maybe you haven't been in the church that long, you may have seen conflict, interpersonal conflict between people within the same church. Talking to the same friend during the week, he told me he's recently kind of come into a position where he can, he's, he's been let in on some of the conflicts that are going on in his congregation that he didn't know about previously. He said it was a bit of a shock to him. He, didn't, he wasn't naive. He knew that that was reality. He's not a, a, a sort of a um, blindly optimistic person, but he just didn't know that some of these things were going on. Divisions within not just the global body of Christ at an institutional level, but there could be divisions within the body of people sitting in one room together worshipping on the same day. There can be rifts. There can be disagreements that go beyond uh, feeling unhappy or disagreeing on a certain matter. People can get to a point where they don't really want to talk to each other. They have to kind of go around the other side of the room. Now, the New Testament never once assumes that naively that we would be free of conflict, does it? In fact, most of Paul's letters at some level are addressing some kind of conflict within the church. But it's... Again, it's not, if we're in that situation, we're not in a state of unity, are we? And this brings us to our, our actual text for today. Philippians chapter t- uh, 4, verse 2 and 3. This is Paul writing from prison, saying, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche... To be of the same mind in the Lord. Other translations will say, I urge them to agree in the Lord. And some will say, live in harmony in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you also, my loyal companion, help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. It's a very simple little passage, just some instructions. 
it's um, coming towards the end of the letter, really, and, and often Paul kind of just rattles off a heap of things. You know, this is not a tightly constructed argument that's building on itself. He's just saying, I urge these two to get along, to mend whatever was going poorly between them, and I urge you guys to help them do that because they're, they're co-workers in the gospel and their names are written in the book of life. One of the big themes in the book of Philippians and that we've brought up many times is that Paul wants, his, wants the followers of Jesus, wants the people in his audience and in the churches to have Christ's mind. He doesn't just want us to mimic behavior. He doesn't want us to see, well, Jesus did that, so I'm going to do that, although that's a good starting point. He wants us to have the same mindset and attitude that was in Jesus. We don't know why Euodia and Syntyche were at each other's throats. Maybe they weren't even at each other's throats. Maybe it was a mild disagreement. For whatever is going on, we don't know. And in a sense, it doesn't matter. Paul is not addressing his instructions to the issue. He says, agree in the Lord. And he appeals to the fact that together they had worked previously with Paul in the furthering of the gospel. And that their names are written in the book of life. I see a connection here, and this is why I decided to read out Jesus' high priestly, or part of Jesus' high priestly prayer. Because remember what he prayed for it was that the church would come to complete unity so that the world would see that the Father sent Jesus. Something about our gospel effectiveness and fruitfulness hangs upon whether we are united or divided. A church divided, and whether it's 47,000 or 200 or whatever, is less effective. Kind of, I would say providentially, at the very start of this week, I bought a book. No, I bought it earlier, but started reading it before I really knew what I was preaching on today. And the book is called Until Unity. And it's, it's the first couple of chapters, at least, are basically a lament about the disunity that we have in the church. And one of the points that the author, Francis Chan is his name, makes is that um, sometimes we think that unity is a sort of a secondary or tertiary or way down the priority list thing. That we've got all these things that are really important and when we've done those and when we've got those correct, unity might be something we look at. Once we've done the important stuff. But this book, and, and I think what I have found in here, is that unity is part of the important stuff. 
So, let me sum that up and then I want to give some, some practical thoughts from Philippians. I think if we look at Paul and Jesus together and, and look at these two texts together, we can see a dynamic relationship. That Paul and Jesus believe that the church is meant to be unified and that uh, we will be unified. When we're unified, we will... Uh, sorry, let me start that again. I've got my mind disunified. Uh, <coughs> We're meant to be unified in terms of our mission. Paul is appealing to these guys, you are co-workers in the gospel. You've been working together for this purpose. I think that's one area in which we are meant to be unified primarily. And the mission being to glorify God and to declare him, declare the goodness of Christ and the salvation of Christ to the world. That's our unifying thing. We can disagree about all sorts of stuff. But I think what unites us is King Jesus and the message of his gospel that we have to share. But the other thing that unites us, and this is what's come through in Philippians, is that the way of living out that message and that reality is to be conformed to Jesus. It's for us to become more and more like him. Because unity can be forced. You think of any totalitarian regime in history, there's often a strive for unity. There's a strive to all be one thing and to all agree together. That's not the kind of unity that Christ desires for his church. Because the way in which we are to be united, the way that he enjoins us to agree in the Lord in Philippians, is to humble ourselves. It's a unity not based in promoting the self, but a unity in laying the self down. Why are we divided in an interpersonal, in this church sort of situation? Often it's because we're proud. It's because we are concerned with ourselves. We're concerned maybe with our agenda or with our own honor. We're concerned that someone else is not respecting me the way that I think I deserve to be respected. And even if that's true, even if someone is disrespecting us, and I'm not saying they should disrespect you or just have blanket permission to do that, it doesn't have to offend me. It doesn't have to touch who I am. It doesn't have to be something that wounds me or causes me to create a division. Now again, Paul is very clear in lots of places in the New Testament there are 
behaviors. There are things that need to be called to account. And I don't believe that for the sake of unity, we should just tolerate or blindly accept things happening that are wrong. But I think we have to be challenged by this that if we are, um, if we are offended, unity is not something that can just be thrown out the window as if it doesn't really matter. It's something that we ought to pursue and desire because I think God desires it. Now, his instruction in Philippians 4, verses 2 to 2 and 3, I just want to sort of highlight three people who were in his scope. The first is the church. Paul, uh, one of the commentaries I read on this, pointed out that, interestingly, Paul doesn't say, Euodia and Syntyche, I urge you to be reconciled. It's almost more like he names them in a letter to the whole church. He says, I urge them to be reconciled. So grammatically, there's almost a, he's saying it in view of everyone else. Now, that's a bit of a challenge because often when we do have interpersonal conflict, it can feel, we, we, well, we kind of want to keep it secret or, and, and maybe we don't want to air our, our dirty laundry. Um. But I want to say to us as a church, as a body, as a collective of people who've chosen to worship here and and gather together, I think we need to take unity seriously. We need to be mindful that we're not letting ourselves have factions or divisions or anything of the sort. Do you know, when I was um, 20, probably 20, 20-year-old, 21-year-old, I came to this church as a student, and uh, I went to a couple of members' meetings, and I thought, because I really like to write, and I thought to myself, I'm going to write like a geopolitical novel based on where people sit in the church, (laughs) right? This was my idea, because we used to have, you know, just rows of chairs and stuff, and, uh, and I just noticed that everyone sat in a different spot. And I wasn't perceiving division in that. I was just noticing a trend. And I thought it would be really funny to base like the whole map of this geopolitical saga that these people sat here and these people... <laughs> anyway, um, that's kind of a humorous example, uh, to me at least. But divisions can build up. Not just interpersonally, but we can have groups that gather together, one here and one there, And these ones talk to these ones. And that could be healthy because this is your crew. You know, this is the people who know and love you. But it can go unhealthy too. If it's we're the ones who think about this and agree with that thing. And we've got to be careful of that stuff. Or I'll write a novel about you when I leave. And I'll I'll lie and I'll say this is not based on anyone real, you know. Um, No, I'm not going to do that. We need to be... We need to be praying and mindful about this idea of division and dissension. The second uh, two people, actually, who are addressed in this passage are the two who are in conflict, Euodia and Syntyche. And 
We don't know who these people are, except that they were workers with Paul. Uh, We don't know from other kind of wider context why there's a rift. Maybe one offended the other. Maybe they just couldn't see eye to eye. We don't know if one of their hopes were dashed or there was a disappointment. There's all sorts of reasons it could be. But all we know really is that Paul wants them to agree in the Lord. And so this I want us to think about in terms of if we're in a position where we are in a disagreement or in conflict with someone within the church. I've already sort of named that Paul's advice throughout this, or instruction throughout this book, is to humble ourselves. And I think a great starting point is to begin by praying for your enemy. Maybe you need to admit that this person has become an enemy in your mind. Because sometimes we think, I don't have enemies, but really we're harboring a heap of resentment and, and grudges over here. I want to challenge you that if there's anyone in this church that you're offended by, maybe me, pray for that person. Pray for their good and not their harm. Pray blessing and not cursing on them. And see what happens both to them and to yourself. The final person kind of named in this passage, uh, well, it's not the only other person but that I want to talk about. He said, Paul says, my loyal companion, and I urge you to help these women. Uh, so Paul has sort of named a third person, unnamed, but is saying, I want you to help these people to reconcile. So maybe that's where you find yourself or have found yourself, being almost like third party to a conflict. And that can be a real minefield, can't it? There, are, there can be dangers in trying to insert yourself into that kind of situation. One of them is the temptation to be important and to meddle. We've got to try and resist that temptation. Another temptation when two people are in conflict is to pick a side and to say, I'm on this person's side. And that, yeah, yeah. And, and even at the level of having way too much sympathy, like, yeah, isn't he, isn't he horrible? You know, I just can't stand it. Da, 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 da. Right? We can kind of become an ally by being sort of overly sympathetic to this, this one person and then ignore that this other person is a brother or a sister in Jesus too. Again, some conflicts are not balanced in, in terms of sometimes one person has really done something wrong. And there's a practical way to deal with that. But what I'm suggesting is if you're a third person in a three sort of if, in the conflict situation, don't take a side, be on Jesus' side, right? I love Lord of the Rings. I love, especially I love Treebeard. And there's this awesome quote in there where he's like, they, the hobbits ask him, whose side are you on? And he says, side, I'm on nobody's side because nobody is on my side, right? Well, I just love that first bit. I'm on nobody's side. I think that should be, I'm on Jesus' side, right? 
And I actually happen to know, even though these two people can't see eye to eye, I happen to know that Jesus would like them to be reconciled, loves them both equally, has something to say to both of them. And so for me to kind of come in and be on one side or the other is actually to step out of Jesus' agenda somewhat. Well, I think we want to be careful about that one, don't we? But that does take some bravery, seeking to be on Jesus' side, because it didn't lead to his complete peace and prosperity in life. Jesus came and he was on God's side. And that meant he was willing to challenge injustice and challenge people and help people. And it meant that many people didn't like him. I think sometimes we've got to risk not being liked for the sake of helping others to know the love of Christ and to be reconciled. I think I've been thinking a lot about as a church where we're at, where we're going. And this is not a statement, I, I hope you believe me, this is not a statement that I'm carrying about individuals. But I've got this growing sense that, we're, that God is taking us on a journey, that part of that journey is for us to become more and more united in the spirit and more and more conformed to the image of Christ as individuals and as a body. And if that, in some sense, you could call that the promised land, I think that there are, if you think back to your Old Testament, when the Hebrews entered the promised land, they had things to face, they had walls to tear down. I think a big wall to tear down is pride. Let's pray. God, I thank you that um, you are majestic and awesome and holy and, and powerful and yet you are not proud. You are not There's no arrogance in you. And we see that, God, because you sent Jesus into the world and he came, though he had all of the benefit and the rights and the privileges and the glory of heaven, and yet he emptied himself and became nothing, the form of a slave, for our sake. God, we do not always live up to that, and maybe we we never do, God, but I ask that you give us the ability supernaturally to humble ourselves for the sake of your glory and for the salvation of the world. God, would you bless this people, this body called Hillcrest Baptist? Would you help us to be a people who love you and your glory so much and who love one another so much that there is no need or room for pride, no need to mind ourselves, but that we might be totally in love with you and totally loving of one another. Help us to not be quick to be offended. Help us to forgive often and completely. Help us, God, when there is injustice when there's something wrong or something bad happening help us to name it and and call it what it is but help us to do it even for the benefit of the person who's done it don't let us be a people who are 
doing it to defend only ourselves, but help us, God, to, to love others, even those who offend us. God, your heart, your grace, your goodness is so much bigger and more expansive than we can possibly imagine. You've forgiven absolutely everything that we've ever done. So help us, God, to be a people that don't hold grudges, that don't hold resentments, but that love one another. And that might come to a place where we are united. And God, by your grace and by your power and by your Holy Spirit, that our unity might be a witness to a divided world. And that people, when they see us, when they come here, they might see and hear and feel the presence of God because you are here as we are united. God, I thank you for all of your goodness and all of your kindness. I thank you for all of the people in this room, wherever they've come from, wherever they're going, whatever they're facing, God. Would your spirit empower them this week to live in the knowledge of your love and grace? Live in the knowledge that Jesus has done everything necessary to reconcile them to you and poured out his Holy Spirit so that we can live like him in the world. Thank you, Father, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's uh, have another cup of tea or a coffee or something. Let's be united in the spirit. Enjoy your week.